Hello and welcome to Movie Go Round, a film discussion podcast that rotates between different themes every single week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is Around the World. Hello, everybody. My name is Brett Stewart. Joining me this evening for an Around the World episode, Nicole Davis, how are you? I'm good. I was thinking of going for ice cream later, but I've heard it might not be safe out there to go uh, with my kid to get a little dairy. So I think maybe I will just stay home for right now. (laughs) I just want the listeners to know that when we start to talk about that scene, as soon as I typed it into Giphy on Slack, it knew exactly what scene I wanted. (laughs) Mad Max ice cream was all I had to uh, type in. Uh, David Luzader, how are you? Oh, I'm doing well. You know, I'm just, I've, I just, it's it's weird watching this movie that right now uh, foretells the time that we live in, made in 1979. So <laughs> I had fun with that. Uh, I'm trying to think of a, a nickname to take on in the wasteland. Oh, perfect! Yeah, it's like yeah. toe cutter. Yeah, George and... Miller's got a talent for nicknames. He really does. Truly, <laughs> I wish I thought of a good one before this episode. I should have. Dang it. Oh, man. Yeah. See, it's George funny. Lucas should have talked to him first before coming up <laughs> with names for Star Wars. It's funny that you say uh, that this is weirdly, if we want to say that anything dystopian is weirdly prophetic of our current times, listening back to our happening episode, which I recently did for editing, and it's on our feed, folks. Very funny episode. All of us are sitting there saying, why aren't they closing down mass transit? Like all the things I found myself recently <laughs> saying. So... Shout back to that. It's worth a listen. But this week was Around the World. That is where someone can pick a film that was not uh, made here in the United States of America. It has to be a foreign film in some capacity. And uh, I think the other stipulation of that is it had to have really been released in a foreign country first. It can't have been released primarily in the U.S. market. Uh, And I picked an Australian film. It was my pick this time around. Before I introduce it, however, I do want to allow future Brett to introduce what you did and you did this to us every five weeks as you did this to us, meaning you get the opportunity, you the listener, to go vote. You can vote on mgrpodcast.com. And if you head on over there during the time in which voting is going on, which is usually a week before we record those episodes, you can add your own pick. You can vote on existing ones. We post it on social networks. It's very easy to find. Get involved with that and make us watch The Hobbit or cats or whatever it is you want us to watch those are two recent ones that have done very well in the polls you can do it over on you did this to us weeks so future me that knows the results of that poll going on right now will tell you what we're watching we're watching cats you're all monsters why don't you just (laughs) hand me the nearest blunt instrument there's a nice table lamp right next to me you know i i should just go for that right now and save myself the pain watch it be something really great right uh yeah sure yeah it's gonna be terrible (laughs) no i i have this deep deep seated fear of cats now not cats the animals thank god but certainly that that's going to end the up more there. you talk about it the it's more already in though it won by lot one vote last time it <laughs> no it missed by, by one vote yeah. last time. missed by one vote rather okay well 
I voted we watch Mad Max, the 1979 Australian George Miller movie for this week. In a not-too-distant dystopian future, when man's most precious resource, oil, has been depleted and the world has plunged into war, famine, and financial chaos, the last bastion of the law in Australia attempts to restrain a vicious biker gang. Max, an officer with the main force patrol, launches a personal vendetta against that gang when his wife and son are hunted down and murdered, kind of leaving him with nothing but the instincts for survival and retribution. His wife doesn't die in the movie. Come on, IMDb. Yeah, that's one thing is I, I didn't really know much about the movie and I had just kind of scanned, I was just uh, scanning the, you know, the Mad Max franchise Wikipedia page and it's like after his child and wife are murdered. But in this movie, it's like, well, the wife's still alive and they're like, oh, there's probably hope for her. It's yeah, like burn after reading. She's eligible. in a coma. We'll deal with it when we get to it. Right. <laughs> but they never get to it. No, they don't. No. I guess I they just surprised. assume. Uh, so I, I, just a couple things before we get too far into this as someone who, whose only exposure to Mad Max was Fury Road previous, uh, to this, does the, does the nuclear war happen between Mad Max one and Mad Max two, or is this already post nuclear war? It's never specified exactly what happens, what the nature of the disaster is that brings this world upon us. Yeah, and also, I think the biggest part of it is that there there is an element of wanting to have this disastrous world and not having the budget to make it in a movie like this. Right, and I feel like I like to believe like I like to believe that this is the early days of that dystopic future where life is still kind of similar to what we might know and recognize. And then the Fury Road version is hundreds of years beyond that. Um, And at least in terms of like resource scarcity and that sort of thing, that seems to be a reasonable assessment. Um, But I do think like you hit Road Warrior and then you hit Thunderdome and they get more you know, dystopic and futuristic. And I think that that's part of just having money, <laughs> like having the ability to do it. <laughs> yes. Yeah, definitely. Though. I mean, wait, Fury road isn't like hundreds of years in the future, right? It's no, it's like f- five to 10 years. We devolve yeah, that I suspect quickly. It's just kind of like <laughs> further into the well, outback. <laughs> uh, 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 Tom Hardy's do- does not that much older than Mel Gibson was in the, and he's playing the same character. Yeah, I've so if we're gonna get into that, but at the very top, I I think that that's partly a um. It almost seems to me like the Max character is, he's not, he's not Max Rockintasky in Fury Road. Yes, he I is. think he's is that yes, his last name in Fury Road? Yeah, he is. Yeah. It is a hundred percent the same Max. Never mind. Okay, I was going to get really philosophical and talk about how this is like a new generation's Mad Max and we're in he embodies a spirit of Mad Max and perhaps the first name. Apparently not. I don't know, guys. Uh, the reason I picked this, though, um, to, to at least lay kind of the groundwork there is is I, I have a love of this of this franchise. I I feel like this is the second time I brought a, a car movie. I like car movies a lot. Um, so that's always really rang true with me with Mad Max. I I like it even more in the wake of Fury Road several years ago because I feel like it it lays down more of an appreciation and a context for just how far George Miller came to realize his creative vision and 
once the technology and the funding and everything fell into the right place that that could happen. Um, I also think it's a really cool time capsule of film where you have these movies where, you know, people like Mel Gibson um, before he's a huge name before George Miller takes a left turn and starts making happy feet and babe pig in the city movies. Uh, There's a lot of fun stuff that I think that this movie entails. And most of all, like I think the reason I love it similar to El Mariachi, which I also brought in around the world pick is it's scrappy. Uh, It, it's one of those movies where you can scroll down the IMDb trivia page and read a hundred different fun facts about the stupid things and crazy things and illegal things they had to do to make the movie. And that makes my heart fill with joy because it's, it's a passion (laughs) project through and through. You can't accuse anyone in this movie of being in it for anything other than that. So that's why I picked it. Uh, I want to go into some of our initial discussion topics. David, you kind of alluded to this, but you had mentioned that this is not really the movie you thought it would be because you had never seen it before. Yeah. Yeah, so this when I was watching this, um, I kept having the thought like, oh, this is an origin movie, which I didn't expect it to be, really. Um, again, I, I, all I knew about Mad Max was, was the Fury Road incarnation, and I knew that that Max is later down the line. But I thought that was typical. I thought that, that's how that character was going to be, where he was going to be someone who was kind of out for himself and then would run into a situation where, okay, he's gonna he's got to help the people in this situation. Uh, nope. This is a movie about how he becomes that guy, which was uh, surprising to me, having never seen it, nor having much knowledge of the first one. Yeah, that foreshadowing when he tells his boss that he wants to leave before he goes crazy and becomes one of the one of the crazies he sought to destroy, only to become one 45 minutes later. Uh, <laughs> Nicole, you had you seen know, this, this movie is- before. Yeah, I've seen, I saw this once before. After Fury Road, I went out and I bought the box set. I had seen two and three already, but I hadn't seen the original. So I watched that a few years ago. And even in just a few years, I forgot a lot about it. I kind of remembered it as, you know, uh, the wild bunch goes Australian kind of thing. (laughs) Um, But this movie is... You know, yes, it's it's an exploitation movie and it's car porn and it's, <laughs> um, you know, this great action movie, but it's also really good. You know, it's well written. It's very well acted. Uh, Hugh, I, I think it's Keys Burn, mm-hmm. Hugh Keys Burn playing Toe Cutter has charisma just like <laughs> bursting out of his pores. And I, I was really surprised at like how emotionally involved I was in this movie. You know, you come to like goose, you know, the, the motorcycle cop, um, you know, and then you get the, the Keystone cops pair, um, you know, the guy that keeps, Bringing, taking the Lord's name in vain and the other guy fretting about being oh, in the car yeah, with yeah. a blasphemer. Right. <laughs> and he gets the electronic larynx later. Mm-hmm. Um, you get you Fifi. In Fifi, yes. The, the plant-loving, yeah, the, like, giant that is his boss. Yeah, he looks like uh, the, stereotypi- the stereotype of a circus strongman. 
you know, bald with the mustache that curls on the ends and is like giant <laughs> up top with like skinny little ankles kind of thing. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but I mean, this movie is so much better than I thought it was going to be given the budget and, you know, the fact that this was George Miller's first feature, I think. And he's really has it together. He you know, he and the editor, they put this together so well. I was really impressed and kind of surprised that George Miller wasn't able to make more movies just on the basis of this alone. It's funny you say it really sounds like he has it together because I'm sure everyone in his life thought the complete opposite when he dropped being a doctor to go make this movie. And that's what he had to do. Like, it reminds me a lot of Robert Rodriguez. Like, yes, this had a $350,000 budget that he largely self-funded. And that's that's not the $8,000 Rodriguez worked with in El Mariachi, granted. But still, it's very self-financed. It's scrappy. You have, like, extras being paid in beer and screen time and uh, most of the actors don't have a ton of experience. A couple of the actors have uh, Shakespearean experience, like, um, yeah. like, uh, gosh, what's his name? Uh, Hugh Keysburn, um, which shows, and even Mel Gibson at the time was just an art student. So you have a lot of these people that are in it for not the money. Uh, and then you have that guerrilla style of filmmaking, which we'll get into in greater detail, but involves a lot of film it really quick before anyone sees there's no cops around <laughs> get it done right uh and and we'll get into that more later because that's a whole interesting you know can of worms to open up but i think that's what rings so true about this movie to me is is that earnest quality to it yeah i think the passion helps elevate this movie um where if it, you know you could have I don't know, making this like a, with a bigger budget, if it was much, it has to be weird. It has to be like this kind of weird that all these guys who are receiving absolutely zero studio notes uh, and George <laughs> Miller is just really like trying everything out because it's still pretty new to him. Like that kind of helps make it work in this weird way uh, because it needs to be weird to be different. It needs to be the right kind of weird to be different. I think it's like it, it, it toes the line of like, you know, Fury Road does feel like this very distant future where this movie, yeah, not quite the future. You know, like it's a few years from now, quote on from 1979. <laughs> uh, but there's like enough, uh, I think it was like Nicole said, where like, you want to kind of, or somebody had said it earlier, where it's like, it feels weirdly like you, you see how society is breaking down. And I really enjoyed seeing that. And part of that is the restriction of they couldn't make the movie the world look broken down because you know they they, they would then have to make it unlook uh unbroken down and uh, <laughs> that requires time and money and with how much they just had to throw everything together i don't know it's, it's it was it was fun uh that we were mentioning earlier you know like mel gibson was this unknown um apparently like in america they didn't even bother like showing him in the trailer they just showed like a bunch <laughs> of the car stuff because like nobody yep. knew who he was so it's like well no one cares if this guy's in it yeah, yeah. And and I think I, I'm totally with you that in the regard that I, I one thing I love about this movie in particular, over even the subsequent Mad Maxes, which I I like all of them. I think that this and Fury Road are the strongest personally, but I I like that this because of that constrained budget that you mentioned, they have to play in that playground of like, yeah, we're still far enough in society where 
you can go to the ice cream shop and they're going to be really happy that someone shows up. But there's also a marauding biker gang that's going to harass you when you get there. And like, and it can have the, that dichotomy. Yeah. And this is the last uh, V8. I th- right. That's what they said. Don't yes. worry. made the car. Like, this is the last V8. <laughs> like, the last of the V8 interceptors. Yeah. Which is like the only time in the movie that you see anything that represents like governance, really, aside from this, this leather clad gang of, of, morally ambiguous cops you have the the one guy in a in a in a suit that shows up with fifi and tries to you know hatch this plan to give max this car in order to keep him on the force because they're afraid he's going to leave the force um and i love that scene because then he's like walking down the stairs to leave and puts on like a like a giant like mask like he needs to go out into the wasteland but he's also dressed like an accountant but that's yeah. the only scene you get of anything like that. Like there isn't that order, but you know it exists in some capacity still. Yeah, but even that's kind of breaking down, right? It's, right. It doesn't reach very far, and even where it is, it's fairly ineffectual. I want to. I want to ask you guys how you classify this movie. So George Miller called it a western in new clothes, and last week on the podcast, I even kind of wrestled at the end of our show with calling it a sci-fi because it's dystopian but kind of science fiction but i think after re-seeing it again today i i'm almost more aligned to aligned with miller that it is like it's a western kind of what do you guys think kind of yeah it's very hard to pin down though yeah like i said it's a it's a little bit it's like a nouveau western though it's like a little bit the wild bunch a little bit the wild one um Mm -hmm. marlon brando you know it's um where the biker gang is like you know what are you rebelling against what do you got you know it's it's just literally everything everything about society they're the bronze man the bronze Um, right the bronze the bronze badges the bronze um but i hmm I mean, my first impulse is just to call it, you know, it's, it's exploitation, it's car exploitation, it's, mm-hmm. um, it's something to pull, it's a, a genre movie to pull people into the theaters to watch cars go fast and blow up. Yeah. It also <laughs> but has, But I mean, though, it transcends that tremendously, yeah. I think. It has that, like, like good man goes to war vibe that you see in certain Westerns and stuff where it's like, that's the straw that broke the camel's back. It's time to Rambo it up. Like you, you see that a little bit too with this movie. Yeah. There's a a little bit of like Tarantino esque, uh, but which would come later, like the revenge, you know, it's like, uh, here's this guy, something's happened to him. Now he has to go kill everybody who has wronged him. (laughs) And in some ways, roaring rampage of revenge and leave the last guy with a choice to either hack off his leg or to die in an explosion gosh where did we see that again later hmm hmm i'm actually not picking up on this where did we see it again later saw oh we're talking about saw okay yeah i thought thought there's a different (laughs) mel gibson movie where he like tied someone to something and made them cut their okay um, but I mean, that's modern the only Mel other movie saw I've seen there. where they give him, you know, here's a hacksaw. You can t- try hacking the chain or you can hack off your foot and that'll be faster. Um, there's, no, there's no way he made it. 
The chain in those handcuffs is high tensile steel. It'll take you ten minutes to hack through it with this. Now, if you're lucky, you can hack through your ankle in five minutes. Go. There's no way. <laughs> that, way. That explosion There's got him. No he didn't even try. But, that explosion um, got him. No, no doubt no, about I was, that. I was, I was thinking in that situation, what would I even do? <laughs> Don't know. Would I even try? <laughs> would I just accept yeah, my would fate? I bother? I think you would go I for the chain and hope you can beat him. Me, you know? <laughs> yeah. Man. Uh, so. Yeah. So another question I kind of want to lay for further groundwork here is, they were when they did release this in the US later on and it became kind of the sleeper hit that led to a lot more money coming up for Road Warrior and Road Warrior being a really big hit uh, they did an overdub with US accents and overdubbed everything the entire script and i have not seen them or heard them until this afternoon because i rented it on amazon that had the original audio and i went and watched youtube videos of the u.s audio and it's really bad because not just is it like the voices don't quite match but they're like they change out their euphemisms to make it more american Uh, we're like when like when when goose gets hit when goose initially hurts himself on the bike he turns around and says you know max i really just need a trip to the tropics like that's not in the script (laughs) which one did you guys watch uh, I watched the Australian accents. Yeah, I, I, I uh, rented it on Amazon, so I got the Australian uh, as well. I'm glad. Yeah, on the disc, though, the um, there's there are two trailers, and one of the trailers trailers is the Australian version that's got all the original voices, and the other trailer is the U.S. trailer mm. that has all, all the American dubs in it, nice. and it's just like, oh, it's terrible. Gibson does dub himself like you can you can feel the hints in the US dub of what his voice would end up sounding like once he kind of lost the Aussie accent yeah I I was a little bit confused I was like wait is Mel Gibson Mel Gibson is not Australian I I no, he was born in the US and lived in Australia for a long time yeah yeah but like I feel like I don't know I feel like you can tell that his accent isn't quite the same like he's putting on a, a bit of one and it's not like a, a, it doesn't stand out as terrible, but it's definitely like much milder. And there's like some scenes where it feels like it's not there at all. Yeah. It kind of comes in and out. And he, when he does have his Aussie accent on, it's just so peculiar because you're so in, in popular culture, you just know his voice. Like I feel like he has a very distinctive voice and it differs enough from it in his you know, first movie ever to just be kind of interesting to me. Um, I do love that he didn't audition for this movie. He went with his sister auditioning <laughs> for a part. Yes. He had a black guy from a bar fight, and they were like, that guy, right? <laughs> like, which is the most <laughs> Mel Gibson thing. Like, well, they, 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 he wasn't even, they didn't even want him for like, the, the main role. They were just like, come back later and audition for you know, a member of the biker gang or something. <laughs> Like you look, you look roughed up and weird. That's what we want in this movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he did. Uh, I do love the first fifteen minutes of the movie where they won't show him. Like it has to be the yeah mysterious yeah. <laughs> man, like putting on gloves and washing his hands, and like in the dark glasses, and yeah, mm-hmm. you just see little bits of him. Yeah, it's so much it, leather. 
And I thought even too, I'm like, oh, okay, we're going to get this Max character who is this very terse, who's like, he's the hard ass on the force that like the kind of the loose cannon that it turns out like, no, they love him on the force because he's so good. And then he's like talking to his wife about like, I've never told you about how like, I really feel I have trouble expressing it. I'm like, really? This is the, this is the guy? <laughs> Oh, Mad Max, you old softy. Yeah, Yeah. there's so like I was watching this with with my fiance, Claire, and I, you know, she was kind of half paying attention because, uh, you know, I'm the one that's supposed to be watching this, not her. And at one point, she's like, is this a flashback? The scenes in which that they're like rolling through the countryside in a station (laughs) wagon and frolicking on the beach. I'm like, no, this is just what he does after he quits. (laughs) Yeah. Well, no, no, no. He doesn't even quit. Uh, His takes leave. Yeah, he's basically like, go on a vacation and then come back. See how you're feeling. And I do have to mention the excess of leather and the fact that like they couldn't even have the budget for leather for anyone besides Goose. Yes. So they're all wearing vinyl. Oh, I thought it was Mel Gibson got the only leather and everybody Goose else got, got the vinyl. Only leather. No, Goose does because he's, he's on a motorcycle. Oh, okay. Well, that Gotta makes protect sense him. Yeah, that, that had to be so swampy and nasty. I just don't in the Australian sun and a bunch of vinyl and leather clad full sleeve outfits. Yeah, that no way yeah, that was comfortable. I think, I think people forget sometimes that you know the reason that bikers wear leather isn't to look tough; it's oh, to no. you know, <laughs> keep themselves from losing skin if they get in an accident. Yes, man, yes. didn't work for Goose. Am I right? That was. Aww. That was oh, sad. That this was movie, his fault, though. This, this movie was banned initially from being released in New Zealand because of it. Uh, because okay. they had had something similar happen in, in the actual news. But still, like, it's even when it came back, like, five years later, they only let it come out with a, uh, like, an NC 17 type rating. Okay. I, I do want to talk quickly about Goose. Uh, when Goose is at the bar and, you know, making eyes at the singer and we go out and it shows someone messing <laughs> All with right, his bike. I question, I, I question the term singer in relation oh, to that oh, woman. The entertainer, <laughs> the entertainer. There you go. Uh, <laughs> I mean, she's was, singing, but, you know. Yeah, so, so it seems like the plan is sabotage his bike so that he gets in an accident. And it seems like, okay, that's when they're going to get him or the accident's supposed to kill him. Nope, the accident... Just seems like a minor inconvenience. He just like gets right up. Yeah, uh, yeah. And they, like he goes and gets a truck. It's like, wait, what was I the mean, point? And, and then they wreck the truck. It's like, why did you just get him when you wrecked the bike? No, but to be fair, you know, it's a, he went flying. You know, the whoever it was who actually did the stunt went flying like seventy feet through the air <laughs> in that bike stunt. So they so, thought so they just he was a lot tougher than they thought he was, was going to be. Exactly. It was a reasonable expectation that that would kill him or at least put him out of commission for quite some time. Well, that becomes a thing in the movie where everyone keeps talking about that there's no good reason that Goose should be alive because this is how he approaches every day. So really what you're saying is he's like, uh, okay, I have a theory here. Now stick with me. It's going to get weird. He's (laughs) he is a Frankenstein's monster. Because the Frankenstein <laughs> monster is is tough, but he's afraid of fire. It's the one thing that I don't know. I just I, I thought like fire was the one thing that got him. So oh, I thought you meant that he'd gotten in so many accidents earlier that he probably had like metal pins in half his All, bones. Also and... that, sure. Yeah, and let's, <laughs> this is the character that's limping through half the movie because early on he gets his leg badly injured. 
Uh, still driving around on a motorcycle. Uh, guess yeah. what? Your doctor will not recommend you do. <laughs> yeah, right hand man named Goose. The eighties were not kind. Uh, <laughs> never forget. Um, so let's talk about some never of our other. Never call your sidekick Goose. I think that's what the lesson is for this. One. Right. <laughs> um, I want to talk a little bit more about Hugh Keysburn. Uh, he's changing accents from scene to scene in order to look increasingly crazy. Um, he shows up later as we know him. Uh, as a Morden Joe in Fury Road, he is the main bad guy. Um, different character, but George Miller kind of does a throwback there and brings him back, and he's great as a Morden Joe. Um, he is the the acting highlight of the movie for me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. He's he's, he's like I said, he's very charismatic, and weirdly enough, having that like one shaved eyebrow makes that one eye kind of more piercing and it draws more attention to it. I totally thought like, Oh, they had just dyed one of like bleached one of them. I didn't realize. Yeah, no, I'm looking at pictures now. It is shaved off. That is hair with like the blonde white streak through the front of the craziness. And he he has the look down so perfectly. It took me a while to pin down exactly what it was. I'm like, is that green eyeshadow? Is that what, what's going on there? Is that, <laughs> yeah. yeah shaved off and it's got that yeah he's got that you know peroxide in his bangs uh this fringe as they'd probably call it in australia um I, to I make think, him look odd yeah i think this guy having a bit of experience also helps the film a little bit because like the bikers are all weird and a little bit over the top um, but you don't spend too much time with any like real individual member uh except you know toe cutter who if he had just been weird chewing the scenery not really knowing how to handle a role or the camera like really would have made it like kind of an eye rolly thing but like this is a guy who obviously knows how to like hit weird from an acting standpoint like he knows how to go big but not you know just be weird uh and it it made him a very creepy villain while at the same time you're like what is this guy doing why is he <laughs> why why is he licking that ice cream cone? <laughs> yeah, he's he's got this. He underplays the menace. You know, the menace is very quiet for the most part until yes. he's, you know, picking people up with one hand by their collars to take them places. But um, he's got, you know, this is why he's the leader. You know, he's got these people doing what he wants you know, and saying, whatever you say, what a wonderful philosophy you have. <laughs> right. Don't do like, it for yep, him. Do yep. it for me. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And you're like, okay, yep, sure will. See you later, <laughs> toe. Bye-bye. I, I, I think part of that is, is that, I mean, he has this, this air about him. And you don't even really know, to be quite honest, if it's, if it's just complete charisma or if he actually is this you know, biker gang criminal mastermind that has led them to glory and, and marauding. And you don't really know what that background is. Um, but he has that it's all, it's Joker esque in the sense that I think it's the same quality that makes someone like the Joker as a character interesting, which is it is romantic to them. It is, this is a, a grand like romance between them and their, their evil, 
side of themselves that, you know, is the mastermind and, and is controlling all the cronies. And like, he has that about him where he's like, he's wistfully Shakespearean about how great it is that he's the boss and that they need to get rid of the, the, the bronzes. And there's that one scene where he's like criminal baptizes, <laughs> uh, that, that, that one guy that they convert, well, uh, it's, it's a bit of a cult as well. You yeah, know, he's right. got people who are willing to literally die to get his attention. Yeah. Well, in the, the like the, the night rider at the beginning. Yes. I was going to say the night rider the whole time is just like, he, you know, he knows my name. He, uh, he sees you know, me, he sees me, which, you know, very a Morton Joe later on. Oh, uh, yes. But there's even that, that guy, the, the blonde guy. Um, I don't remember what his name was. But, oh, Bubba Zanetti? Uh, Bubba Zanetti. I love that name. Bubba Zanetti. It's so good. <laughs> uh, but he, you know, doesn't always necessarily agree with the decisions that Toe Cutter makes, but he never seems to be willing to go against them. It's like, right, what a fail, though. Said. What what an absolute failure of a death in the movie. Like it reminded me of Chris Hemsworth like shooting off on a motorcycle to fall into a wall in a in oh, that's a spectacular death. That's what one of the best about? deaths. I love no, that. No, no, but but the hubris that leads him to said death where uh he turns oh. around and tells Toe Cutter, "No, I got this." Immediately gets owned by Mad Max. <laughs> Just immediately. <laughs> yeah. Motorcycles versus cars. There's only really kind of one way that's going to go. Motorcycles versus shotguns. There's only one way that's going to go. That. Um, <laughs> and and speaking of that weird like like marauding gang baptism with the shotgun in the mouth with Johnny the boy. Apparently, he actually cut the actor's mouth with a gun in his mouth. Like this was oh, something geez. that they they didn't have the money to make elaborate props. Uh, just absolutely wild to me, but I do really like him in the movie. I'm glad they brought him back for a Morton Joe and Morton Joe stands as one of the pinnacle of the pinnacle of, of action movie villain for me in the last couple decades of movies. Like he is just so good and it hadn't done a ton in between. So I'm glad he was brought back. The night rider. That is his name. The night rider. The night rider. Remember him when you look at the night sky. I will. Uh, Nicole, magical teleporting bikers. Yes, they're all over the Australian countryside. They're everywhere. <laughs> they're yeah. wherever Max is. And you yeah. never see following him. Right. You know, I think maybe once you see them like trying to trail him, but... You- there's no indication that they have followed Max and his his lady and their kid. I'm oh. not convinced she's his wife since he's only like just now being willing to tell her how he feels about her. <laughs> yeah, uh, they have a kid. But yeah, they have a kid. It's it's clear the bond is there. Isn't their um, kid's name like Booger or something like that though? Well, no, no. They call him Sprog, which is yeah. Australian slang for Australian slang for a kid. Basically. Oh, okay. No, All right. <laughs> Never mind then. <laughs> Continue. Yeah. The the only time they're given any information is when uh they drive up to the mechanic and the mechanic's like, oh, so they were heading up north, and that's it. Like they're able to find them based on they're heading a cardinal direction. I it's so funny <laughs> when you think about like this is is it the largest country in the in the world? I'm not, I don't know if I'm gonna play 
No. No. No, I guess that's probably China or Russia, but... Oh yeah. yeah, it's it's sure. roughly it's the large. size of the continental U.S. It's very large. Like there are lots of places. Like, it is and it's very not, large, and it's not as if it's not Australia. Like they make it clear that this is dystopian Australia. So it is hardly unbelievable that he's not running into any of them. I also love the scenes in which he starts following them, and the bikers are like in sets of two, and they're like marauding across the countryside, and he'll just watch them from overpasses, and then the next shot is an entirely different part of the countryside in which his car is now in front of them, so he can menacingly drive forward, and then turn back around and follow them. (laughs) Like So good. Yeah, there's a lot of magical finding of one another in a country that's roughly the same size as ours. (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah so it's uh the the australia is number six in terms of size here's a little fact for everyone what was number Uh, one did we get it wrong number one is russia Russia. two is canada three is china four is us five is brazil and then six is australia I don't have the more you know sounder on a soundboard right here, but you can imagine it in your head. This is uh, also this is also like just briefly before the time that apparently all the water is going to disappear. I really want to see the timeline of Mad Max. <laughs> yeah, so, yeah, and it's also the time in which you know there's like the oil fields in Fury Road, and they have to make pilgrimages to the oil fields, and then in this, it's just rob a well, tanker. Like well, the tankers so, are still around. So, yeah, I think that that kind of I think Nicole's right. It's a little bit more like how far in the outback you are or where you're at, because a lot of uh, Australia is like, OK, you know, yeah, it's a city. But then the, the closer, the more you go towards the center of the continent, there's just like nothing. Yeah. yeah. So there's, there's a lot Alice of nothing Springs in this movie. And that's about it in the middle. <laughs> yep. There's a really big rock at the center. Yes. <laughs> uh, so big she- sacred rock that you should not go climbing on. Um yes. <laughs> but you know take pictures but don't don't go climbing on it <laughs> yeah, don't get up there um anyway yeah it's, it's it is very big i think that's why their car culture is about on par with the the car culture in the united states is because we we need cars to get from point a to point b there just isn't a way to build enough infrastructure to cover the entire country with public transportation or even you know light rail everywhere you just right it it's it's too big um so we're dependent on cars and so we start kind of you know fetishizing them to some degree so then you get the the hot rods you know i love the look of the hot rod with the flames on the outside and the fur on the inside yeah before johnny the boy gets converted yeah that's a yeah yeah, Johnny the boy. I mean, Johnny that's kind the of a funny thing. That was one of the the fun trivia bits I found out about this is that like all the cars were essentially held together with spit and bailing wire and just had like really <laughs> fancy outsides done up for them to make them look super cool and like they were taken care of. And all the bikes were pretty much brand new and they had to make them look beat all to hell. Yeah, oh, and a, and a few of the few of the people because they got like you know a real biker gang to do some of the biker gang driving, and uh, some of the biker gang kept those bikes. I don't know if they were supposed to, <laughs> but they did. Well, the 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 crew claim that a lot of bikes were donated by Kawasaki, but I kind of wonder how many of those donations were loans that wandered off. Right. Exactly. It's like, oh well, we ended up wrecking it. Sorry. 
Yeah, like, I, I mean, the, the cars in this film, you have like the Interceptor, which is Mad Max's iconic car, and then a couple of the other ones, they're, you know, they're decommissioned police cars that are being used. Um, you know, they, the budget was so minimal that they really had to come to set ready to go, meaning they had to wear their outfits and drive their cars and their, and their motorcycles. So, so that like the get out of jail free card in the movie that goose uses when he's flirting with the women on like a futuristic tricycle thing. Um, he, he, that's actually a thing they had. Like that was an in joke in the set was we have these cards that we can pull out to give to the police to at least tell them exactly why we look the way we look. Like, yes. Um, which is great to We're me. Like a I, movie. <laughs> right. And, and, you know, we, we put in the docket here that, you know, there's a lot of this movie where there is, you know, Hey, film it for the cop. See, um, you know, pay a truck driver $50 and slap something on the front of his truck. So he'll run over the bike that, uh, kills, uh, toe cutter. Like these are all things that are done very gorilla and under the scenes and they don't have filming permits for any of it. Um, until at one point the authorities caught on and started to at least help them cordon off streets and stuff like that to my understanding. Right, David. Yep. That's yeah. They, once they kind of figure out what was going on, they would help them like close down streets and get them permits they needed. Love it. I that would not happen today, right? <laughs> like that's a that's unique to this time in indie filmmaking, right? Uh, yeah, you get your permits ahead of time if at all possible, but there, yeah, there's still indie filmmakers that will sneak footage. No, I mean, I mean the police helping you. I, I think it depends on like where you are when you're doing that. You know, filming in like a small little quaint town. Sure, they're probably going to help you out filming yeah. in the middle of a big city and trying to shut stuff down. No, you're going to, well, though 28 days later, I don't know. I know some of that. They had to shoot at like, th- like four in the morning to avoid people. Yeah. And, and, and it blows my mind when I watch this movie, because you think about how it's, it's $350,000 budget, very small. And yes, they're using some of the cruise cars. They're using those bikes to, to your guys points and, and cars that are being held together with duct tape. But they're still doing some pretty crazy tricks. Like they're smashing cars up and sending them flying and exploding. And there's that shot where um, one of the decommissioned cop cars like flies through a truck and the truck like splits in two. Like there's stuff that, gosh, if you're going to be an independent filmmaker and you want to make your first movie, I, I, is this, it's amazing that he would pick to make a movie like this. That is so yep. dependent on cars doing crazy things. That is such a ballsy move. Well, and, and you can tell too, they didn't really have uh, insurance covered because there's a scene where somebody jumps like a car starting to drive and they do like the pole vault thing from, yeah. uh, from like a ledge to the car. It's like, no, 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 no insurance company would ever allow that to happen. No, no, no. <laughs> Uh yeah, I I'm a big fan of the car stuff in this movie. I like the car porn stuff. I'll admit it. It Oh yeah. And I mean they've got the cars stra- they've got the cameras strapped to the vehicles a lot of the time. Um, yeah. That scene about- at the end where Toe Cutter's trying to flee from Max, they had the DP on the back of the bike behind the uh behind the driver, you know, shooting over his shoulder and looking at the speedometer and you can see it's getting up to like 180 kilometers an hour. Oh my God. And he's just like, Oh, okay, great. 
I hope I live for this shot to get in the movie. <laughs> oh my goodness. Yeah, I I love that aspect of this movie. And I'm now realizing I've actually brought three car movies because I had Gran Torino as well. And I was thinking of the second one being Paris, Texas. I like car movies. Uh, <laughs> next up, cars. No, I don't like cars that much. All righty. Oh. Um, <laughs> let, let's round out with a few other discussion topics. Uh, let's talk about this more broadly in the scheme of, you know, the Australian new wave movement of films. This is largely credited as being like the film that put Australian indie filmmaking on the map. It was the highest grossing independent film of all time until the Blair Witch Project came along. Um, and that, of course, brought along a whole new era of filmmaking in a totally different place. Nicole, you have some thoughts on this, I know. Oh, I, I did a little bit of research. And um, first of all, I want to really recommend a documentary to everyone called Not Quite Hollywood, The Wild Untold Story of Ozploitation, uh, which talks about the entire Ozploitation movement of the 70s and the 80s of these, you know, little scrappy genre picks that could, um, that were being made on the cheap in Australia that people were really enjoying, just like the stuff at the grind houses here in the U S excuse me, you know, stuff like, um, stuff like this and, uh, Razorback, you know, uh, long weekend, things like that. Um, but there's also, you know, there was this whole thing after, World War II, the Australian film industry was just like pfft, nothing. You know, it had it had nearly died, and the Australian government poured uh, tax incentives into the industry, and they made a government-sponsored film school. Um, wow! For people to attend, basically, and so like the first generations coming out of that started making. Australian, you know, Australian films, like film films, like uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock and Gallipoli and that kind of thing. Um, so, but I mean, this sort of subgenre of Ozploitation came out once they had an R rating or the equivalent of an R rating in Australia was established in the early 70s. Hmm. And so all of a sudden you could have a ton of, you know, boobs and blood and uh, violence in your films and they're like, well, if we can, let's do it. And they packed it all in there. <laughs> Though this movie really does like, Yeah. This movie, you know, uh, we know it in the U S is dead alive, but it's a uh, <laughs> oh, brain yeah. dead. You know, you yes. get, you get that's, I mean, technically that's New Zealand, but it's, it's this in the spirit of Ozploitation. Um, you know, it's like, if you can do it, let's do it. Although, yeah, there's not a lot of, uh, they didn't have the money to do like real gore in this movie. They're just hints of it. Well, and but also it's like a the, lot of implied violence and also like it, implied nudity at parts. Like it gets like close. It's going to show. Nope. Just nope. No nudity. Yeah. You never actually see anything in this movie. Um, and well, you see the, a man's bare bottom. Yeah. Right, right. That doesn't count. <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh, and no, I think it does count. Cause they're implying that both members of that couple in the hot rod get, sexually assaulted oh yes no yes that's bad times and i guess you have the couple at the beginning and like literally the first frame of the movie uh (laughs) has 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 a couple doing it so i I guess that maybe it's not entirely that clean um i also think to my understanding and 
and again, I'm speaking as someone who is a, a, a novice enjoyer of these movies, um, if there was such a thing, is you have like this Bushranger type style of film that comes into prominence in the 70s and 80s in Australia, which is like their almost like their spaghetti Western. Like they have a lot of movies that are about these Bushrangers that are like the guys that are the escaped convicts and the wild West of early imperialized Australia. And you have a lot of those types of films coming out around that time as well. You know, stuff like mad dog Morgan. Um, so that Walk seemed to play an element as well. One of those. Yeah. Yeah. So, so like that seems to be another element of that kind of, you know, mid mid seventies into eighties Australian film. Um, do we have, what is our, what does Australian film look like today? It well, looks the, a lot like American filmmaking today, really. Yeah, there was the movie Just Australia. lower budgets, generally. So, uh. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, I'm just trying to think of, like, if there's been any recent Australian films well, that have I mean, taken popular culture. Well, I mean, they shot the culture. Matrix movies in Australia. The Lord of the Rings <laughs> movies in Australia. No. No? Or, New, oh, Zealand. New Zealand. Well, what? Well, what's <laughs> Peter the Jackson is not Austra- Peter Jackson is not Australian. <laughs> Wait, hold the phone, guys. Hold the phone. The Babadook is an Australian movie. I could have brought yeah. the Babadook for Around the World. You Alrighty. could have technically, yeah. That, that, that no. <laughs> Hot take. I hate the Babadook. I'm sorry. I know now it's going to end up on a list that we're going to have to watch at some point. Um, but I hate that movie. Wow. I got to take right. it off my new to two list. <laughs> oh, do you? <laughs> yeah. Man, well, <laughs> uh, Mad Max, uh, 1979. Do we have any uh, closing thoughts? Uh, particularly interested in David coming to this for the first time, and then Nicole, uh, you returning to it, and it seems like having a little bit of a different experience with it. Um, David, you I go guess first. I'll, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll hop on. Um, I, I don't know. I think uh, if you if you're like me and you saw Fury Road and you've never seen this movie before, like realize that it's not going to be what you think it's going to be. Um, and that's not necessarily a bad thing. I, I did enjoy the movie. It is weirdly calmer for most of the movie and a bit quiet. Well, I don't want to say quieter. It's actually got more noise. Like there's like, there's this constant, uh, the, the, the radio through the background of like 60% of this movie, uh, really stood out to me like the dispatch lady. Um, but it is really interesting to see the origin of what became such a huge movie, you know, a few years ago that, that got nominated for best picture and won like six Academy awards, uh, go in. I would say if you're like me and seen it, go in expecting an origin film. Like if you watched Endgame and you're like, I want to see where Iron Man started. Like those are going to be the first Iron Man movie is like way different. Uh, so it's going to be like a little bit like that. You're, you're seeing where it all began. Yeah, I think that's a really good comparison. Uh, what about you, Nicole? I, like I said, I was surprised at how well done this movie is, although it is, I think it's still firmly an exploitation movie. I mean, they, mm-hmm. you know, they built a prop um, rubber head just so they could have something for the eyes to bulge out of oh, uh, yes. right before the people I hit know. the cars. <laughs> so it's like a little thing where you squeeze the rubber bulb and the eyes bulge out of their sockets love it uh it is it it happily you know uh swims around in that pool 
you know, George Miller is not above anything, but he he was a an excellent filmmaker from the get go, and it shows in this um, in this film. And there's there's not a lot of blood, and there's not a lot of explicit stuff. So if you know that's been a, a something that's been keeping you away from it, I would say definitely you know come around. This is this is a well done movie. Give it a shot if you haven't seen this. Right on. Yeah, I, I'm so glad that you guys enjoyed it. I didn't know I didn't know how this would land. Um, as I said at the top of the show, this has always been a favorite of mine. And I think, as David said, if, if you have uh, a love for Fury Road, as so many of us have developed, largely without even seeing the original movies, I would think. I mean, Fury Road can stand on its own really well. And I don't think I had seen these originals before 2014 um, when Fury Road came out. Uh, was it 24? I guess it, wow, Fury Road's been out that long. Um, I will kind of say elephant in the room. It's one of those things where I, I'm cool appreciating what this movie was and removing the Mel Gibson from it. <laughs> and I think that that's something we avoided talking about successfully. And, and I think that's good, but like, is he a terrible person? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, it, it's, it's he still wasn't a great yet movie at this point. Right. Yes. Right. It's still a great movie, and and I think that you know if if you want to remove yourself from a lot of his more recent projects, I think that that's very justifiable. And there's a lot of very problematic things happening with Mel Gibson movies in the last twenty years. None of that is here though, and I think that if you can remove yourself from that, you're gonna have a really good time with this movie. Uh, let's go around the table and see where we can find everybody online. David, what about you? What are you going these days? Oh, gosh. Uh, hit me on Twitter. Username's Davluz. That's D-A-V-L-U-Z. By the time this episode comes out, I should have launched a new podcast I've been working on for a while. So uh, find out all about that there. Very good. And Nicole? I updated my letterbox today for the first Ooh. time in a while. Um, so I'm on letterboxd at Nicole underscore Davis. I picked up two followers today, so I'm up to seven. Love it. (laughs) (laughs) Very good. Well, you find you can find Nicole over there. You can find me on Twitter at I am Brett Stewart. You can email the show hi h i at mgrpodcast.com. We would love to hear from you. And one more final reminder: you can vote every five weeks. You did this to us. That's what next week is going to be. (gasps) My future self announced it at the beginning of the show. It'll also be in the show notes if you want to check it out there, along with the name of that documentary that Nicole mentioned as well. If you'd like to check that out, it'll all be in the show notes. I don't mention those enough, but I feel like they're a pretty good resource to keep track of things we either mention or uh, what's upcoming on the show. So check it out there. But this was Mad Max, and we will see you again next week for the start of a new cycle when you do it to us with uh, who knows what. We'll see you then. Tomorrow in a world gone mad. Only law will be a renegade squad of suicidal cops. He's my prisoner, and he's not walking out that door. And the open road will be controlled by gangs of glory roaders. 